Hi, welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Louisville. For our final episode of Season 1, I'm here with Dr. Eric Russ, a clinical psychologist and the new Executive Director of KPA. Dr. Russ receives his PhD in clinical psychology from Emory University, which also happens to be my alma mater. And since moving back to Louisville, he has taught at the University of Louisville's Department of Psychiatry, ran the PTSD clinic at the VA in Lexington, and worked for Passport Health Plan. Prior to his new role as executive director, Dr. Russ served several roles on the KPA board, including as president in 2019. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to get to chat with you today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited uh, and happy that you uh, have done this project. So I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk today. Me too. I've been really looking forward to recording this episode. Just to start out, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you ended up pursuing psychology. Sure. Uh, uh, So I'll talk a little bit about the beginning of my career. I know some of the people you've had on the podcast uh, decided they were going to be psychologists uh, when they climbed out of the crib. Uh, I had a little bit of a later development uh, and was in college, mostly an anthropology major, but had taken some psychology classes because I wanted to take upper level psychology classes. So I took the intro classes and sort of phoned it in on those classes to um, get into the more interesting stuff. And I I was sort of close to getting a double major. And so I decided my last semester of school to take a couple more classes just to finish out the double major, but I was going to go into anthropology or join the Peace Corps or something after college. Um, And so wasn't really interested in grad school at that point or, or anything. And then my last semester of college, I took two classes, one on personality and artists. Um, so looking at um, famous artists, writers, painters, musicians, um, through a personality lens to understand sort of what made them creative or um, you know, particularly successful in their career. And another class on ending. Uh, so the class was focused, it was just for last semester, uh, psychology major seniors, Uh, who were leaving college and it was focused um, half on the process of ending college and then half on empirical research on ending and relationships and how do you manage relationships. Uh, And those two professors really got me excited in a different way about psychology. Um, And so I started talking to them about what what is grad school? What does that look like? What does that mean? Um, and so, uh, they were really helpful in just kind of giving me the lay of the land, but I felt like I needed a little bit more experience. So after I graduated, uh, I moved back home and didn't know what I was going to do next. Uh, and, uh, the person, um, Drew Weston, who ended up becoming my advisor came to Emory where I was graduating from, uh, in that summer between after I graduated college and needed, uh, somebody to run his lab. Um, and so these other professors got me the job, basically, of uh, being his lab manager uh, for a year. And so working with him, we got along really well. Um, I uh, ended up uh, then taking another year off after that and sort of goofing around and traveling uh, to get out some of that need, uh, but then coming back and starting uh, grad school with him and, uh, and really uh, figuring out what psychology was about more in grad school, I think, um, than I had before. That's such an interesting trajectory. And to think, too, that a lot of the appeal to psychology came from those upper-level courses, which I assume were more discussion-based. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I had just never planned on going to grad school or, like, that that wasn't on the radar. And so I wasn't as engaged, perhaps, academically as I could have been in undergrad. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, it just took a while to figure out what what I wanted to do. But then one of the things that happened, I think probably in an abnormal class. And then maybe again, in one of those seminars is hearing, um, seeing interactions with patients and hearing some clips of a uh, professor playing some, um, I don't think he was playing tapes of sessions yet. Um, but he had some, one of the professors had some letters from a patient that had written over the years and, and read those, um, and that was really intriguing. And so the idea of clinical psychology in particular, 
uh, and psychotherapy started to get uh, really exciting. And so thinking in that clinical direction and really um, becoming interested in personality and sort of why people do what they do uh, and understanding that and then that you can change that or hope to change that through talking to people uh, was really intriguing. So that kind of core clinical piece has been something that has always been um, really attractive about the field. Yeah, that's um, definitely something I've heard across a lot of interviews from from previous podcasts is that a lot of people are so interested in like the motivation for our behavior, which makes sense, but it's an interesting common thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how about you? What, what made you uh, get into the field? Probably fairly similar, um, well, somewhat similar to your story. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I really liked the idea of being in a medical field. I just wasn't sure what that would look like. Both my parents worked in medicine, but I was really lucky during undergrad to have lots of time to try different classes and explore. And I actually went to Emory as well, as you know. Uh, so they have a human health major now, and that's a really interdisciplinary major. And it has classes from sociology to anthropology to neurobiology that are all kind of housed under this one umbrella. So having classes through that major made me interested in psychology from a kind of a different lens, I guess, and thinking more holistically about psychology. So I ended up joining a lab um, as an undergrad and working on narratives of trauma and looking at psychology through kind of the lens of story and language and how we speak. So I think seeing how all those things could come together and impact the individual was really interesting to me. And for a long time, I was pretty sure I was going to go into public health. So I pursued a lot of classes kind of centered on public health and broad level change and policy. But over time, I realized that I'm much more interested in the individual and what we can do at that level while also thinking about policy and the systems that are at play. Because I think you can't discount those either. Yeah, that's that's great. I think um, one of the things that I think we'll end up talking more about this later is there's an interesting kind of merger now in that perspective, I think brought it more broadly in the field about how do psychologists think more public healthy and more at a population health kind of level. And then partly because of everything that's going on and increased attention to psychologists as advocates and um, making ourselves known in the policy space uh, in a way that I think historically psychologists have been sort of reticent in some ways to engage or engage as deeply as they could in those kinds of spaces. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what drew me to counseling psychology rather than clinical is that I see a lot of elements of public health and sociology within counseling psychology a little bit more than clinical. So I decided to, to pursue that. But it's interesting how it is seeping more and more into the common dialogue. You've been talking with Dr. Sheila Schuster, and she's been involved in advocacy and, and public health initiatives since, you know, for decades. Absolutely. And I think you need somebody like Sheila, who's been so amazing in Kentucky to sort of engage you or, or understand what that's about. I remember a lot of people in Kentucky have Sheila stories about um, how they uh, wanted to engage or how they want to be Sheila when they grow up. Um, and uh, APA hosts something called the Practice Leadership Conference. It used to be called the State Leadership Conference every year where a group of folks from different state associations go. Um, and I went one of my early years as the early career representative uh, and remember being in a taxi with Sheila back to the airport uh, where she was regaling me with stories of advocacy and working with the ABA board and some challenges that they'd had here and all the sort of backroom negotiations and strategizing that she did. And it was just like, oh, this is a cool thing that psychologists do and it's exciting and important that you're talking about you know protecting our profession promoting our profession protecting our scope of practice things that are really critical for psychologists to be able to do their jobs um, and we really need people to do that kind of work mm -hmm. i think it's easy to forget that all of that work happens behind the scenes and if you're in practice or in research it's probably not um, front of mind but i know I mean, seeing KP's emails come through like just the other day with the, um, the call to support the ban on conversion therapy with numbers to call, emails to write, it makes it so not easy. I think it's not quite easy, but it makes it more accessible to get involved in advocacy work at a very Absolutely. basic level. 
and I, I would encourage folks to, when they get those action alerts from uh, their state association or from APA, make those calls. Uh, it takes two minutes. Uh, I mean, it really is very fast. Uh, particularly here in Kentucky, you call. Um, if you've never called before, they take a couple of pieces of information. Um, and then once you've done that, the next time you call, they look you up. They know who your representatives are. You say, I want this message to go to my representatives or this committee that we include in the email. Um, and they write it on a little card. In Kentucky, it's these little green cards um, that the folks at the desk then stack up and deliver to offices. And it's really incredible how seriously legislators take those calls. Um, so there are the emails that they get, and we all sign on to those emails from lots of different organizations. Those are okay, um, but they really pay attention to constituents who are willing to take that couple of minutes to call um, to the point where I've been in meetings with legislators um, where they say, you're saying this is important, but you know we've only gotten two calls on this. Here's our stack. Or, you know, look at this stack from the other side. You know, it's much bigger. Why should I go against these folks and support what you want? Um, so those calls you make are really critical, especially at the state and local level, um, to show that there are people engaged on the issues um, and to show legislators that this is something that's important to people and they need to be paying attention to. I didn't realize that they still use physical cards and stack them up. That's a really neat way to think about your message getting to someone and like physically having an impact versus the email that you can just send off and it feels like it's gone to the ether and you don't know if anyone will ever read it. Absolutely. It's also a reason, I think, to make sure you're joining your state associations and joining APA. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done across psychology uh, and we're all in our day jobs in whatever niche you happen to be in you know, clinical, counseling, organizational, out working in the community, um, wherever you are, there's, you've got a sort of small piece of the pie that you can work on. And all those pieces are really critical, but you also need the professional associations doing the other work that you can't get to and being in touch with all of those pieces of the pie and letting you know when you can make that call and people doing the behind the scenes work uh, like Sheila does when she's up on the hill in Kentucky um, you know, meeting with legislators, talking with legislators as KPA's lobbyist. Um, so it's really important to support those efforts uh, and to answer those emails and make those calls when the calls to action come out. It's a good reminder. Yeah, I did call about the, the ban on conversion therapy and it's interesting they said they the session was too full and they didn't get to it, which is always mm -hmm. disappointing as well, but... Hopefully they'll get it to is. the next there's session. A, there's a good group of folks in the state pushing that. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful we can get that through. So thinking about policy and, and broader topics right now, I imagine COVID-19 is going to have policy implications and also implications on um, our field as a whole. What are your thoughts on what changes we'll see? I think it'll be interesting and There'll be some, I think, opportunities for psychologists coming out of this. There are certainly a lot of challenges that people are facing now. Um, I think the most obvious that's been talked about a lot is the shift to telehealth and teletherapy. Um, yeah, that was a trend that was already uh, increasing. The technology's been around for a while and sort of used in a scattershot fashion. Um, but now almost everyone is comfortable with it, using it both on psychologist side and on our patient side, um, that I think uh, there was some initial hesitancy among folks who use psychological services to engage uh, via the computer. But um, I think once folks try it and see that uh, it's comfortable and you know, assuming all the technological barriers um, are resolved, uh, that it's a good way to access services uh, and that you can get help that way. Um, I think along with that are policy level kinds of conversations around access to technology, um, access to broadband services. Certainly here in Kentucky, we've got huge parts of the state where access to a secure internet connection and a stable internet connection um, aren't there. Um, so I've talked to lots of psychologists who see patients who drive into town and are, you know, their cars parked in the um, you know, Walmart parking lot or the fast food parking lot, and they're trying to do therapy from there, or they don't have a private space in their home. Um, and so they have to, 
you know, take a walk or, um, you know, go out in the car and are trying to do therapy from there. And so all of those things create challenges to doing the work. Um, and so figuring out ways we can advocate for broadband access uh, as a critical component to healthcare infrastructure, uh, I think is going to be really important. Uh, I also think um, it's really highlighted in some of the ways that I've talked about, but also uh, kind of other ways, access to healthcare, um, you know, folks, uh, obviously the discrepancies in who's getting uh, COVID-19 and who's dying from that, the racial disparities in those numbers um, are uh, really staggering and call to action um, policies to address general healthcare disparities that we've known about for a long time that have existed in lots of ways that are being kind of called out and highlighted uh, through COVID-19. Um, I think psychologists figuring out how we can support frontline healthcare workers uh, is another piece that's been um, really interesting to track. So uh, what kinds of interventions do folks need? Can we set up different kinds of um, models to have people access care. So there have been some different groups around the country setting up essentially drop-in kind of remote sessions. So um, you set up a booth at a hospital or at a triage site um, where um, your nurses or physicians or other frontline healthcare workers can go after a shift or before a shift and just check in with somebody or debrief um, and get some support and um, counseling that way, potentially connected to other services that they need to. Uh, so thinking about what those models might look like uh, in the future. Um, and then thinking about how psychology can influence the broader public discussion around this uh, is another piece that I, I think is helpful to think about. Um, there was an article written by uh, Arthur Evans, the CEO of APA, about uh, the way psychology needs to be engaged when a vaccine comes out uh, to avoid misinformation and how can you promote the kinds of behaviors that we want. So in this case, getting a vaccine. I also think psychology has a lot to say about how information is distributed and information is processed. So obviously through this um, whole pandemic, there's been you know, uh, information and disinformation and information that hasn't been clear from leadership uh, in ways that um, I think if you have good psychological science informing those conversations, those public health messages can be more effective. Um, so how do we get people to listen? How do we get people to comply with mask wearing, for example? Uh, and if you look at other countries, the sort of culture around mask wearing um, became um, just something that everyone did very quickly. We obviously didn't have that here for lots of different kinds of reasons, um, but I also think the way that that will happen could have been done in a way where people uh, had much higher adherence and it didn't. Yep, so many, so many good points and so many um, ways that psychology is relevant to the current situation. I, I hadn't heard of the drop-in booths at healthcare settings and, and think that sounds like an incredible opportunity, especially for people who are really putting their lives on the line to take care of, take care of people. Yeah. So I think, I think we've come a long way in general uh, disaster response from a behavioral health perspective. So psychological first aid principles, um, better crisis models uh, that we had in the past that are helpful for people as opposed to neutral or potentially harmful. Um, and so figuring out what uh, kind of behavioral health disaster response network uh, looks like, I think, is a um, important challenge for organizations like KPA uh, to take on with our other behavioral health um, partners across the state. Um, so what's it like to be in, in training right now? And I know you're just getting started with um, clinical work during COVID. What's that like for you? What a weird time to be a student starting their first practicum experience. <laughs> but it is really interesting to start therapy work virtually I imagine that I'll have a leg up as we move to teletherapy being kind of the a secondary option or just an option that is just as accepted as in-person services. But I also worry in some ways that I'm missing out on the in-person experience. And from what I've heard from clinicians who've made the transition, they don't feel like there's anything tangible that they can really like put a finger on 
that they're missing in sessions, but it's hard to imagine that that's true when you're just starting and you don't know any different. So it'll definitely be an interesting experience, but I have to say it's difficult to manage technology as well as trying to learn therapeutic skills and improve those skills at the same time. I think it will definitely be a challenging time, but I'm excited to to learn what that'll look like. And it's definitely been a lesson in flexibility too. Mm-hmm. So what's exciting to you and, and what do you worry about in the field right now as someone um, starting uh, your training experience? Um, I think what's most exciting is the accessibility of services now. And while it does come with some of the disadvantages you mentioned, such as privacy and access to internet, I think for the majority of people thinking about transportation and childcare, I think this is a step in the right direction for making therapy more accessible and um, perhaps a little less stigmatized. Um, So I think that's really exciting as a new clinician, especially someone who does research on health disparities and socioeconomic status and health outcomes. As far as what's worrying, I think about kind of not the disorganization, well, I guess disorganization um, in the field and kind of the issues with practicing across state lines and everything that comes with that and how that will change in the coming years and how I hope that will change. So right now that is definitely top of mind, but I hope within the next four to five years, we'll have figured out some good solutions that are organized and consistent across states. Yeah, I actually don't think it will even take that long. Um, I think, as you know, SIPACT is psychology's model for allowing interstate practice uh, that just went live, uh, I think, last year. uh, And Kentucky should be joining that soon. We introduced some legislation uh, during the last session. It didn't get through for some um, politics reasons, not because uh, anyone actually had an objection to uh, the underlying product, but I think there'll be a big push uh, to do that across professions. Some of the other um, professions already have these kinds of things, uh, and I think we'll see fairly quick adoption across, uh, I would say, all states or almost all states in the next uh, year or two, because this really has highlighted the problems with having you know, each state manage their own practice. Obviously, there's some some pieces of that that need to remain, but I think once we get SIPAC through, uh, that should become much easier when you have um, patients move around. I'm hopeful for that. I know um, a lot of my friends who are in training in other places, if they're working at a counseling center and they have students who they've uh, who they see who are out of state, it becomes very complicated to to figure out how to manage that relationship and how to continue services. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that will change soon. Be remiss to not bring up the racial violence going on in the country right now and also the social justice efforts that a lot of psychologists have been um, putting forth, whether it's webinars or trainings or providing free services to protesters. But I'm curious what we you think we can do as psychologists to be um, anti-racist and to support anti-racist efforts. Yeah, so that's a, a big question, and there are lots of things to be done. Um, we have a lot of work to do in our field. Um, I think psychology has had a, uh, in some cases, outright racist um, and prejudicial stance uh, for lots of years. I think we've come around in many corners from that, but still have quite a bit of work to do to be truly uh, anti-racist and to grapple with the um, problems created by racism in society, uh, and particularly thinking about the recent wave of police violence toward Black folks. So I think one of the things that we've been trying to do in KPA is organize that in some way and make sure we're working towards action. Um, So a a critical piece uh, that needs to happen is making sure there are more black people in the room when decisions are being made. Uh, So this specifically has come up in KPA. There was an uh, issue brought by uh, a member of, the board that wanted some board action um, and um, a decision was made around that um, by uh, our 
executive committee, which at the time was all white people. And that's not an okay way to make a decision. And we didn't do enough at the time to recognize that and to rectify that. Uh, so I think there are um, important ways we need to be actively recruiting uh, black leaders in particular uh, and more diverse leaders in general or um, people coming from um, you know, different paths uh, in life and different demographic diversity to make sure that those decisions are being made by um, people they're affecting. Uh, so I think that's a, a critical kind of first step. The other um, piece is making sure that we're doing enough, having enough conversations and doing enough training among particularly white psychologists for how uh, they need to understand cultural differences, how they can practice from a place of cultural humility, um, and think about uh, what that looks like, given that there aren't enough black psychologists, psychologists of color. Um, and so we're going to be working with communities um, who are different from us. And that's true in, in lots of ways, but we as an organization, as KPA uh, and APA is working on this as well, need to make sure that folks um, who are doing the work have those resources to think through what those decisions are like. At the same time, there are pipeline issues that we can work on uh, as a field for uh, why more uh, black people and people of color are not entering the field of psychology. I think that really starts um, even as early as high school. You know, what can we be doing to engage um, high schoolers in thinking about what it means to have a career in psychology? Um, we need to be looking at the process of applying to graduate school and then what being in graduate school means. I think um, one of the, there's um, obviously lots of barriers and expenses and um, ways that uh, opportunities arise in the process of becoming a psychologist uh, that reinforce the racism that exists in psychology more broadly. Uh, so I think all of those conversations are happening, but conversation isn't enough. You know, I think a lot of times these things get put into committees and then we don't take action. And so figuring out what are we going to do about these things? What active changes uh, can we make uh, to move the system in a uh, more equitable direction and be accountable to take more anti-racist action? Um, the other thing that uh, I think happens with these kinds of conversations is that because there are relatively fewer black psychologists in the field, when issues of racism come up, those psychologists end up taking on a high burden of work. Uh, so uh, in thinking about KPA in particular, there are two or three people who uh, we go to often uh, who are amazing and brilliant and hardworking and um, you know, know their stuff around racial trauma and racial differences and inequality. Um, but we can't, it's not fair to rely on them to do all of this work. So we need to uh, be encouraging white psychologists in particular um, to figure out the ways that they can appropriately engage in this work. Um, and to push them to think differently uh, and understand the ways that racism are playing out in our um, structures, in our clinical practice, um, and in our policies. So I think that's the, the last piece of that is I think we need to do a better job of advocating for anti-racist policies. So again, speaking about KPA, one of the things that we're spending on um, time looking at is how we develop our advocacy agenda and what that process is like and how uh, how and who we need to be including in that differently, but also do we need to take a different perspective around that. Um, one of the things that lots of state associations in particular struggle with, including Kentucky, um, is uh, managing a um, membership that is politically uh, Diverse that has you know, that ranges uh, from liberal to fairly conservative, um, 
And I, I think that at times has made us timid on taking action in ways where the psychology of what needs to happen uh, is very clear, even if that issue um, has become politicized. So I think one of the challenges of doing that work uh, in this environment is that all of all of all of the issues has become political um, in a way that um, has probably always been true to some extent, but not to the degree I don't think that it is now. Uh, and so are there ways that we need to take stands that are different now because they're important values to our field, um, even though they have sort of become political in ways that um, ideally science shouldn't, but is and you know always has been to some extent. Um, and so figuring out what that process looks like and then holding ourselves accountable to looking at that. So one of the, the pieces that we're working on with KPA is to have um, essentially an anti-racism report card that the board would review at the end of every year to say in these you know three or four areas, what did you do this year? Um, and a way of having a conversation of where did we fall short because we're gonna um, and you know what went well, what are we not what are we neglecting? what are we not paying attention to? and are we making progress? So um, ideally in you know a couple of years, you could take a look at the last um, couple of reports that we did and say, you know is the organization moving forward um, or are they not? So we have some public way of holding ourselves accountable to the work that we should be doing. It's really great to hear the idea of the report card. I, I love that. And I think it also highlights the the difference between anti-racist work and not being racist. And I think those are very different things. And now I've heard um, over and over again from different podcasts, different interviews, like at this point in time, if you are not being actively anti-racist, you are supporting white supremacy in some ways. Um, and I think seeing that KPA is evaluating how it's actually taking action, not by what it's not doing or not engaging with, I think is a really exciting thing to see. And I hope that it will be emulated across graduate programs and organizations in Kentucky. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge is to make sure that um, it doesn't become a, another sort of fad that fades away or just lang new language that we use that, that how can we really take uh, this idea and turn it into action? I, I, one of the, the frames that's helpful for me in that racism versus anti-racism framework is that you're looking at behavior and you know so what are we doing in each moment and there are going to be times when our actions um, are racist or support the system of racism um, and we hopefully will um, find ways to uh, call ourselves out to hold ourselves accountable for external groups to hold us accountable when that happens um, but to move towards doing more things that are anti-racist and that that uh, is actionable and measurable in a way uh, psychologists hopefully understand um, as a framework for behavior change. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not sure if you heard about a program called Academics for Black Survival and Wellness that happened over the summer. So it was started by a counseling psychologist, Dr. Della Mosley from the University of Florida. And it was basically a week-long program for academics to take time away from their research and other priorities to focus on learning about what it means to be anti-racist. So it involved learning about history. And I mean, there were so many elements. And by the end, you had like an action plan for what you're going to do and accountability partners and a process to make those changes happen. I think it's easy to think like, oh, I've posted this on social media. Or, oh, I've done this one thing, like I'm, I'm being actively anti-racist, but I think we forget it's the continual process and also continual learning. And that will likely include making mistakes as well. Right. And I, I think it's also when you get back from those kinds of, um, you know, workshops, we had, we spent some time talking about this at, at our KPA retreat, um, making sure that those plans stay a priority amongst everything else that, that comes up. Um, that obviously, you know, COVID um, is dominating a lot of thinking right now. So there are always challenges, always big things to work on. Um, so finding ways, and I think some of this is structural and policy-wise, to make sure that that anti-racism work is 
at the top of the agenda and foregrounded in that work um, as opposed to sort of put on the back burner. And I think that's how you keep it from being something that kind of dies in committee, um, you know, is to keep talking about it and make sure that language is embedded in your strategic planning, in um, your values as an organization. Uh, all of those things end up being important in terms of driving priorities. Right? Just because it's on the list doesn't mean it's getting worked on. Uh, and so figuring out um, how to make space for that and prioritize the critical work around anti-racism that needs to happen. That's a really good point. And I'm hopeful that even as or if the media coverage of racial violence in our country starts to decrease, that people will continue to stay engaged and active in the pursuit of um, social justice and equality. Absolutely. So I think now would be a good time to start um, delving into some more leadership-focused questions. Um, so Eric, I don't know if you'd be willing to share a little bit about the Leadership Academy and what that's looked like. I know you've you've built it from the ground up, so I'd love to hear about that from you. Sure. Um, I sort of built it from the ground up, stealing from lots of other places, uh, as most good programs do. Uh, so our uh, KPA Leadership Academy really grew out of uh, discussions um, at uh, Practice Leadership Conference that I referenced earlier and hearing that other states were doing this. Um, and uh, me not wanting other states to do something cool and uh, not have that come to Kentucky. Uh, so uh, it's sort of been kicking that around for a while. I thought this would be a good thing for KPA to do. Um, but when I first started thinking about it, I didn't really have much leadership experience or a sense of what uh, leadership was. Uh, my first supervisory job uh, I got at the uh, Lexington VA running the PTSD clinic. And I remember my first week or so there, I was having one-on-one -on -one meetings with my team just to get to know folks. And somebody asked me what my leadership philosophy was. Um, and I remember, I'm sure this was not uh, encouraging at all for her, but I remember sort of saying, uh, I, my what? Um, I, I don't really know what that means. Um, and I, I sort of stumbled around and, you know, came collaborative, they don't want to listen and all things that were true, but it wasn't organized in uh, kind of a coherent fashion. Uh, and so starting to figure out through that process and, and being a leader of, you know, what having a leadership approach meant um, helped kind of bootstrap my own understanding of leadership. And then hearing about what other states were doing and what their models were, um, there's particular models from Ohio and Pennsylvania um, that had leadership development programs already working well and up and running. Um, and knowing that they had those and learning about how do you do this? How do you teach someone to be a leader? What do those behaviors look like? Um, so you need to figure out some way for people to do leadership uh, while they're having conversations around it. Um, and then we were lucky enough to have um, Dr. Stephen Niffley, uh, who you had on the podcast, when he moved back here, um, I, I don't remember exactly how I found out, but he did the Ohio Leadership Program. Um, and so, you know, he had all the materials and everything. And so I had some conversations with him about his experience going through that, um, what that was like. Uh, and then he uh, joined our board and joined the um, group that was creating the Leadership Development Academy. So his input was really critical to finally kind of getting things uh, launched here. Um, but it also became important to me to uh, have a place where psychologists could come develop leadership skills so they didn't have the same moment I had of, uh, you know, what is my leadership philosophy? So that there uh, was some foundation in leadership as psychologists move into these leadership roles. I think it's really important given all the changes that are happening across settings in academia, in healthcare, um, you know, in clinical practice models, the psychologists take a leadership role in whatever setting they're in, um, but you need some foundation to do that and to be comfortable doing that. And so psychologists are good at school uh, generally. And so figuring out a way to teach them those skills or give them some comfort in those skills um, in a learning environment that hopefully works well for psychologists. We're used to a mentor-based model. Um, so our leadership program brought together a cohort of KPA members, uh, pairs them up with a mentor, 
to uh, work on something that they're interested in, like a really excellent podcast on leadership. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and then has them actually implement that, uh, again, as you have done uh, so excellently, across a year uh, with their mentor. We do some leadership development activities uh, along the way and uh, work on this model called the Leadership Challenge, which uh, is a very kind of structured, behaviorally-based way of thinking through leadership so that leadership isn't scary and you can think about your own strengths and weaknesses in leadership uh, development. So uh, that's how all that started and, and why I think it's uh, an important piece for psychologists to think about. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of that backstory. I didn't know all about that. That's that's cool to hear about Dr. Niffley's involvement in a similar program in Ohio. And yeah, I think from reading the book and engaging with this program, it seems like there's, and even before coming to this program, there's this idea that some people are just born good leaders. Maybe it was the friend who was bossy in kindergarten or the person who can just corral people a certain way. But I think through reading this book and learning more about the science and what the research says about what good leaders look like and how they act. It's um, really interesting at how the lessons we've learned in the program and within the book have really aligned with everyone we've interviewed, whether they're describing the advice they would give to someone as a leader or if they're describing one of the great leadership experiences that they've had in their life. Yeah, and uh, when we were working on picking a model, we're fortunate in Kentucky to have uh, an organizational psychologist, Dr. Andy Meyer, who lived in Kentucky for a long time and then um, move and was working on leadership development in Hawaii uh, for uh, the last chunk of his career and uh, then moved um, back to Kentucky a couple of years ago, um, who has been using and teaching and training on the leadership challenge for uh, a long time. And so to have his expertise to bring to bear on this program was uh, was really helpful as well. Um, but yeah, I, I fully agree that when I first uh, read this book, which um, had been adopted as the KPA leadership model um, uh, many years ago, I think maybe when Andy was president, um, but uh, no one was sort of doing much with it um, when uh, I became president. So someone's like, you should probably read this. Uh, and I had the same experience you did, that, that thinking about leadership as behaviors that you can do um, you know, similarly, actually, to the anti-racism discussion that I think if particularly if psychologists, but most people uh, think about something they can do as behaviors they can do more or less of, um, that becomes a really much clearer guide than some of the abstract ways that these things are, are often talked about uh, to what folks need to do. Uh, and so thinking about you can be inspirational, you can be um, someone that people are strongly attached to um, through the behaviors that you do. Again, not concepts that are, are foreign to uh, psychologists, but it gives you a framework for thinking through what do I need to be paying attention to and how do I relate differently to um, employees or teams uh, in ways that are helpful. In the same way that we learn to relate to our patients you know, as people, but also in a particular way as people. Uh, that you're doing the same thing as leaders and having a framework to do that is helpful. Yeah, thinking of that framework, I thought it might be helpful just highlight the the five um, core tenets of the leadership model. So thinking about uh, those five, it's model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. Going back through the podcast. I was looking for the different themes that came up in um, all the interviews and those five themes were present in every interview and were very beautifully described and described in different ways, but it was always there. So it was really cool to see how that happened and whether the person I was speaking with knew about this model or not, it, it was just present for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think uh, there really are universal principles of, of leadership and uh, the folks who developed the model uh, developed them empirically. So they did research and surveyed thousands of business leaders about um, you know, what they considered best practices in leadership. And these were the things that uh, essentially were factor analysis that they derived. Um, and so it's uh, encouraging and uh, not surprising that the themes uh, emerged for the folks that um, 
were uh, that you're interviewing as well. And I think to folks who are listening to this who may be earlier in their leadership journey or thinking about where they can plug in, um, you know, I would encourage folks to get connected with our Leadership Academy at KPA uh, and to think about um, you know, using this model to take their own next steps in, in leadership, whether that's in their community, um, in other organizations that you're involved in, or uh, in psychology specifically. Yeah, I think um, the training is invaluable and you can see it modeled in other people, but until you can pinpoint what about what they're doing is effective, it's hard to be able to, to do those same things. And I also wanted to add, it was very interesting in the interviews. I um, interviewed Dr. Amanda Mitchell, who's my advisor, and she described a great leadership experience with Dr. Sheila Schuster mm-hmm. um, as a graduate student working with her in advocacy and to hear her describe Dr. Schuster's process um, and involvement of her as a student was really, really interesting um, and cool to see how it all all came together, and especially thinking about how, how you had a similar experience with Dr. Schuster as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think KPA is uh, kind of accidentally where I grew up as a leader. Um, so I uh, joined KPA um, when I first moved back to Kentucky uh, seven, eight years ago now. Um, uh, partly because I happened to meet the person who was the early career chair at the time who was leaving and they needed somebody to take over and we were out at a bar and she said, do you want to do this? And I was like, I guess, I don't really know. Um, but I was also working in a psychiatry department at the time. And the idea of being around more psychologists was, um, was really attractive and, and appealing. So, uh, I went to a couple of meetings and just found a really um, smart, thoughtful, caring group of people um, who I got to see lots of examples of how to lead well from. Um, so you know, being um, the ECP chair and eventually early career representative on the board, you get to see president cycle through every year. And so you see how different people um, you know, do things like run a meeting you know, which we don't think about as the competency necessarily, but some people are pretty bad at it. Um, and other people are really good and efficient uh, and inclusive in the way that they run meetings. And so getting to see both kinds of examples over the years of, um, you know, how you do that. And it's something that we don't talk about or even necessarily teach in a way that like business folks get taught how to do that. You know, how do you make an agenda? How do you move through that sort of skills of doing a meeting? Um, that are important when you're leading a team. Uh, and so being able to, to see some of that and, and learn and understand some of that through KPA was really helpful to me. Um, obviously, having Sheila as, a, as an advocacy leader and then um, having uh, Lisa Wilner, uh, who is the executive director uh, at the time and through most of my time uh, with KPA, uh, really um, manage a lot of that process and, and do it in a really impressive way. Uh, was um, helpful to me. Lisa had a way of getting people uh, engaged in the process and agreeing to do things uh, for the organization um, in a way that uh, w- you know, made them feel included and wanted and um, like they wanted to be part of something um, that was um, really impressive, that encouraged the heart piece that she was really good at. I think if you if you asked a lot of people on the KPA board the last 10 years, having some experience with Lisa or Sheila um, was a critical part of that process. Um, and so uh, feeling included and feeling valued uh, through that, um, both of them are very good at, at doing that. And so um, being able to watch that and sort of observe and, and think about you know, what it takes to be a good leader for that while also working through my own, you know, leadership development and figuring out what, um, what leadership looked like for me. Uh, and some of that was seeking out, um, some mentors, including, um, Dave Hanna, um, who was somebody I went to when I was, uh, first in leadership asking, how do you do that? How do you be a boss? What does that look like? Um, and who was very, um, helpful and is still very helpful to me in thinking through, um, some of those processes. 
Yeah, I think it's really critical to have mentors like that who you can go to to ask questions and really learn by example and also learn by having an open space where you can really ask tough questions and, and try and hone your skills. Yeah, one of the um, better pieces of advice I got early on uh, for folks was collect mentors. Um, and, and I think uh, about that a lot and that you want um, folks in different parts of your life, both collect in terms of you don't want to lose those relationships with people who may have mentored you um, early on as much as possible. Um, but also that as you try to learn new skills or push yourself in new directions, you're going to need different mentors to help you through different phases of your career, different skill development you're working on, all of those kinds of things. And so as much input and help you can get with that, the better. I think that's very wise advice, and especially for students who might be listening who are in a graduate program, I think it can be a very insular environment. And if you're lucky, and I'm lucky, and I have a great advisor, it's it's wonderful, and you get one example of what leadership can look like, but I think it's helpful to have people at other institutions or in other sectors to really get the a breadth of experience of what leadership can look like in different ways and what that means for your future and what kind of career opportunities you want to seek out. Yeah, and I think make sure you're thinking about leadership um, as part of your career trajectory at, at some point and think about developing that competency as a leader, um, that it really is like all of the other competencies that you're developing um, in grad school and beyond, um, something you can work on and get better at um, and and not something that is just sort of comes to you. And I think the other thing is um, – play well in the sandbox, um, you know, work well with other people and see what opportunities are there. That the more that you find opportunities to do leadership in whatever setting you're in, people will start to notice that and then ask for uh, opportunities, which is is the other piece of making sure you're looking around and talking to the folks uh, in whatever setting that you're at. And again, I, I think I want psychologists to be leaders in healthcare and in work settings, but also think about leadership in your community and getting leadership experience you know, with religious organizations, with community groups, with sports teams. All of those are places where that leadership experience feeds back into your professional life and vice versa. I, you know, I think you know, I talked a little bit about my development as a leader in KPA. Um, that was essentially free leadership training that the places who were paying me uh, to do a job or getting to make me a better leader. And so the more of that you can do, the more uh, uh, of your own development you can work on in whatever context that's happening is going to help you uh, career-wise. So think broadly about um, leadership and developing your own uh, leadership capacities in whatever forum makes sense to you. I think psychologists need to be out front in lots of ways uh, in our communities, we have a lot of knowledge and we tend to hold on to it uh, in ways that I think are not uh, helpful all the time. Um, so think about the places you can talk about being a psychologist and, and use what you know as a psychologist to be an asset to that. Uh, and that doesn't mean take over things. It means be a helpful resource for organizations who are doing lots of different kinds of work. Because we have a lot to say about how behavior change happens, how people hear messages, how to get through defensiveness. Um, all of those skills are really helpful in lots of contexts. Uh, and the more places psychologists can be, the better we are as a field. I could not agree more. And I think seeing people like Dr. Niffley who offer webinars for free to, to general public and students and whoever is interested is a great example of being a leader in your community and, and providing knowledge. And that's, um, I think, really critical. And hopefully more people will continue to see that as a valuable use of their time and a way to give back. Right. And I, I think with that, we also need to be advocating for um, those services to be paid in ways that yeah. are helpful, right? So mm -hmm. I, I think it's important, engage, do the pro bono work, do the talks, all of that is um critically important, but we also need to support the folks doing those work. Um, that, it, that we often ask psychologists for um, you know, free talks and free labor in ways that other professions don't always get asked. Um, and so just being 
um, mindful of that process and being thoughtful about places we can advocate to get funding to our institutions um, and get uh, funding to other organizations to do uh, those kinds of um, professional development. I'll say for uh, uh, clinical psychologists in particular, people who are practicing um, thinking about ways that we can organize better and be leaders in clinical space, given that the clinical mental health space um, has lots and lots of people with lots and lots of different kinds of degrees. How can we be leaders in organizing our uh, mental health communities um, to advocate for access to care and appropriate reimbursement to that care? that's one of the scariest things as a psychologist in training to think about the way our system is structured and the way we don't prioritize mental health and um, the cost associated with providing those services is a little a little frightening. So hopefully that will be part of the changes we see soon. I think so. And I think some of that's going to be dependent on where your generation goes into the field in that um, there is really good work being done now by APA to work on reimbursement kinds of issues. Um, but we also need to be thinking locally on uh, ways that we can organize and um, create uh, entities, create uh, structures to allow us to effectively um, advocate for what services should be reimbursed uh, and that they should be reimbursed fairly. Um, so psychologists sometimes don't want to think about that advocacy work or talk about the payment piece, um, in ways that I think hurt us at times, um, or we want to just kind of check out of the healthcare space in general. So, um, you know, which isn't helpful over the long term to psychologists getting reimbursed. So I think encouraging folks to stay engaged in healthcare and think through how we can, thoughtfully and effectively engage with payers and uh, be part of the conversation about what's helpful and what a, what a effective and what an effective continuum of care looks like for patients. I think that's, that's a really good reminder. And we certainly have a long way to go. I remember that that was actually part of what drew me to public health is just the the issues that are policy around how we think about mental health care as opposed to physical health care and how much change needs to, to be done on that. Yeah. And the fact that there's still so much conversation that splits those two things isn't helpful. Um, I think there's a lot of good work in integrated care settings. Uh, that's a place I think psychologists have been uh, a little at least on the wave, um, but we need to make sure we continue to put people um, in those positions um, and uh, think about the way psychologists can be effective in those organizations and in integrated care kinds of settings and uh, thinking about how um, psychologists can be helpful across lots of healthcare settings and how we can uh, think about where we are most effective across that uh, continuum with people who need relatively brief kinds of interventions, um, but also how do we uh, make sure that people who need more intensive psychological services have access to them and can get them. Um, and so we really need to be thinking about um, what that funnel looks like. How do we make sure that we can get a lot of folks access to very basic kinds of information psychoeducation, self-care kinds of information. And I'm, I'm not sure psychologists always need to be the ones providing that. Um, and then, you know, sort of the next level, how can we make sure that, that um, evidence-based interventions are being used uh, in a short-term basis where needed, and then folks can get the longer-term care that um, folks with more complex kinds of problems need to be. We certainly have a lot of work to do. And I think it goes back to the idea of, of starting early in the training process. So thinking about what practicum might look like or internship might look like for students in training to really help them develop the skills to excel in those settings. 
Absolutely. And I think psychologists are really well positioned to, to take on leadership positions. We're really good at integrating information of looking at data, analyzing data, uh, and then using that to make uh, decisions, um, as well as having a really deep understanding of the kinds of clinical concerns that people are bringing. And that integration uh, is really critical to being a leader in healthcare. Um, and so I think psychologists can really use that if they then layer some leadership skills on top of that and um, work to get into those leadership or administrative positions. Yes, I definitely agree. Yeah, so thinking about that and other advice you would give to, um, to psychologists and people interested in psychology, what what do you think makes an effective leader for someone who's listening and wants to, to put some of these practices into action? To maybe summarize a couple of points that we've talked about earlier, I think think about it as a competency of uh, something that, that you can learn. Pick a model. Um, we use the leadership challenge um, for the KPA Leadership Academy. There's lots of other options out there. Um, uh, you know, sort of like picking a theoretical orientation for um, clinicians I think find something that fits for you or the language um, works for you. Uh, and then think about yourself as a leader and be intentional as you move through your career path to both build those competencies and take on leadership experience when and where you can and go after it. I think there are lots of psychologists who sort of uh, shy away from those administrative roles. You know, I don't want to give up. Um, you know, all my clinical work or, you know, I don't want the burden of um, you know, supervising people. And, and I think that makes for a real loss to the field when people make those kinds of decisions. Um, obviously, you know, not everyone is going to go into a leadership position, but I hear way too often from psychologists who um, just aren't interested in taking that on and sort of want to um, practice and sort of be left alone from these bigger conversations. And as a field, we can't do that or we're going to get left behind. Um, that we have to be a lot more engaged across institutions, shaping policies within institutions that support psychologists. One of the things that um, Arthur Evans talks about at APA, before he came into that role, he um, worked in the um, Department of Behavioral Health at Philadelphia. He ran that, uh, their um all their Medicaid uh, units. So when he put out requests for proposals, he included psychologists as necessary participants in the RFPs. Um, and because he was a psychologist and knew the value of what psychologists could bring to that work. Uh, and so because you had a psychologist in a leadership position like that, he created opportunities for other psychologists. Um, so I think that is uh, a critical piece of how we need to be promoting uh, ourselves and promoting uh, psychology. I also think just uh, that expertise in, um, in using data and understanding what it's like to, uh, to work clinically, to work um, you know, in applied kinds of settings, and then to take that and figure out you know, what do we need from a systems perspective and how do we translate that language from uh, our clinical folks to our business folks? How do we make the financial case? All of those places that we can integrate are things that psychologists can do and are good at. Um, and I think the, the other thing is just, you know, make that a priority for yourself. Um, and if, if opportunities don't come up, keep your, keep trying, keep working, keep, um, uh, looking for doors that will open, you know, if something doesn't work out in, you know, one particular area, move over here and then use your professional associations as ways to get that training, you know, come into KPA, uh, run for a border committee with APA. Um, you'll get really good examples of leadership in those places and find leadership development programs like the KPA Leadership Academy uh, to enroll in and to work on these skills in. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. And also thinking about like a broader theme that I've I've heard you talk about is really getting outside of the box that is psychology, as it's seen from a layperson. I think a lot of psychologists are very traditional and and to be effective and to move the field forward, I think we need to think in 
more non-traditional ways and think more flexibly and be a little bit more nimble. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean we can't keep doing the same kinds of um, services and, uh, you know, incredibly good work that we've you know, been doing for a hundred years. That's going to continue. Uh, but that can't be all that we do, uh, that we have to um, think about population health and how we can improve the mental health of our communities in a um, bigger way. Um, so what's, what's this been like for you? So you've interviewed uh, me now and uh, uh, lots of other folks. Uh, what kind of lessons have you learned? What, what stood out uh, in terms of themes from the folks you've interviewed? Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this process? Wow, I've learned so much. And coming from a research background of being very interested in narratives and how people view their life and meaning from their experience, I think... Um, there are definitely a lot of themes and a lot of them were reflected in um, the model of the leadership challenge book. And I think a lot of it is that it takes time and practice to become a good leader and that no one is really good at it from the get go. And it also requires work to find the mentors who will help you learn and grow and model um, good leadership skills for you. So you can learn from them as well. Overall, we need to keep educating and keep learning from each other and hearing um, the stories of how people become good leaders and the lessons that they would offer. That's great. I'm really glad you've uh, done the podcast. I think it's been really valuable. Uh, I've gotten uh, good feedback from uh, folks who've been listening. And so I think it's a, a, a great contribution to, uh, to the KPA and to psychology across Kentucky. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun. It's definitely been a privilege to get the opportunity to talk to so many interesting people. Great. So is that is that a wrap on uh, season one for you? I think this is a wrap on season one. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, today, Eric. I'm sad that we're wrapping up season one, but it's been really great to talk to you today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and it was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible.